we go. Yes, 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 it's another day, it's another week, and that can only mean one thing. You're here, you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and it is time for the Stedman History Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Matt James Davis from the following announcement. And today is another very, very special and inspiring chat. I'm joined today by George Mann, the amazing theatre maker, actor, performer, creator, writer, director. He's got his own theatre company, Ad Infinitum, who've been making amazing work such as No Kids, Translunar Paradise, Behind the Mirror, Ballad of the Burning Star and many, many more shows. We dive right in and we speak about what inspired George to become a performer, his movement background. We talk about his time at Lecoq. We talk about what theatre means and having a platform and the future of theatre, where things are going to go, changing your style, changing the kind of work that you make. And I just found it really, really amazing for one of the best directors that I've ever worked with who really challenged and pushed and inspired me when we worked on Pink Mist. And it's just a really, really nice chat. I think you're really going to enjoy it. I had a brilliant time. And thanks to everyone that just checks out the podcast each week. If you enjoy it, please make sure that you go and you give like a little rating for it and tell your friends about it. Subscribe. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex Stedman. You can follow Ad Infinitum at Theatre Ad Inf. And you can also check out their website ad-infinitum.org. I think that it's time that we just go straight on to the chat with George Mann. Enjoy! George, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, how do I introduce myself? So, um, my name is George Mann. Um, I am a co-artistic director of a company called Ad Infinitum. We're now a, a CIO. Uh, we're based in Bristol. And I'm also a freelance director, actor, sometimes kind of a writer. I say kind of, but I'll explain that at another time or another point. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think that just about sums me up. Cool. What what got you into performing? Performing? Uh, actually, I have to go right back to when I was about 11 years old. And see, my dad was in the army and we were in Winchester at the time on an army barracks. And they used to have an amateur theatre group. So my mum dragged me along to the theatre and we watched uh, a play, like a farce called Daisy Pulls It Off. <laughs> I think today I'd probably be like balking, like, going, oh my God, I can't stand this. But um, at the time I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Uh, and I desperately wanted to be on the stage and uh, and express myself in all those stupid ways. So that's where I got the bug. And then from there, it was a gradual kind of, uh, a case of like getting involved in school and in different theatre groups and that grew and grew until uh, until my drama teacher was like okay you've got to go to drama school and I was like well I can't afford it <laughs> so that's where it all kind of started for me okay so um did you because well I, I guess I'll kind of move on to like how much of an incredible mover you are and like physical kind of being and creator do you have is there any kind of dance or movement background uh, no uh, well actually I say that see 
at the same age, 11 years old, my dad, I was getting really badly bullied. <laughs> and my dad was like, right, you go to karate. This is, this is what a military dad does, right? They think, oh, the solution to my kid getting bullied <laughs> is to send them to a karate class. So I was like, oh, God. So I went to this karate class and there was learning that. I remember actually being in a fight at school and trying to do like a catapunch and it just missed. Oh, no. <laughs> so bad. And I was like, ah, oh, disappointed dad again. Um, yeah, so I was going to karate, but movement wise, I was really good at it. I was really good at learning all of the katas and all the movements. And I was also doing gymnastics at the time. I was also really good at that. And then I fell off the double bars in gymnastics and landed on my coccyx and did my back in so severely that I basically couldn't do like any kind of movement stuff in terms of karate or gymnastics for about six months. So that completely knocked me out of that and knocked my confidence quite a lot. Um, and after that, it took me a hell of a long time to get back to not just like theatery stuff but also to understand that what i love about it is uh, is the body the physical and all that kind of stuff and it was when i i joined um a summer kind of theater group i got um it's called manchester youth theater or it was called manchester youth theater and uh, you had to pay a fee to get in and i couldn't blah 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 and i ended up applying to the prince's trust and they paid for me to go and so i was working for one summer with different like directors and you get like you know different tasters and one of them was bill hopkinson and he works in all these like crazy physical ways and he was working with a choreographer called isolt at the time she's cuban and, oh my god it was incredible it was just i was so inspired i remember them like, oh, wow like all these kind of physical ways of um interpreting theater and uh, we did a production of uh, stephen burkhoff's agamemnon and it was really physical and it was also a production with a really like, you know, beautifully diverse cast, like different, like uh, people from different cultures. Um, there were three deaf actors involved. There was an actor in a wheelchair with cerebral palsy and like nothing was not possible. And all of us were on the stage together and oh, it was the most incredible experience. And that kind of, I just it never left me. And I got back. And I was at, I remember at, at school, I was doing like GCSE drama and A-level drama. And I was like, I really wanted to use all this stuff. And I just wanted everything to be physical. And it drove my drama teacher a bit nuts. But um, yeah, that's really where it kind of reignited. And I remembered what, you know, that I, that's what I love doing. I love moving. <laughs> the funny thing is when you're in drama school, not drama school, sorry, when you're in school, not drama school, <laughs> you uh, learn about all these physical companies. So you, we did learn about Complicite, you know, and we learned about uh, Frantic and um, you know, those kind of companies. And you learn about Stephen Burkhoff, you know, who's also a graduate from, uh, from Lecoq, like um, Simon McBurney. And so those things are there, but then this weird thing happens where you might, so my drama teacher was like, oh, you should try and get into drama school. So I started doing the rounds and auditions for drama schools in the UK and, um, it was a complete failure. Like I just, it just wasn't happening. You know, everywhere I went, I was a bag of nerves. And also you just get given this script, you know, and you're like, okay, I've got this, what is it? Shakespeare or whatever. And they're like, come and do this soliloquy by Hamlet or whatever. Okay. And so it doesn't come naturally to you or isn't where your strength is. Or if you haven't really been taught that skill, getting into drama school based on that is really hard. And also I think if you're coming from any kind of, you know marginalized background like you know i was coming from like a working class background i was gay 
I had really low confidence. I was, I find it really, really difficult. And I went to these drama schools and you have these really intimidating setups and you walk in the room and you just basically shit yourself and it's horrible. And I just, every time, honestly, I was just a bag of nerves and it just never happened. And I tried for two years and I went to, um, I felt really bad on my drama teacher. She was like funding it. So my mum couldn't afford to send me to the, the auditions. You have to pay for a train fare to get there and you have to pay an audition fee. And so basically that excludes so many people whose dream it is to become an actual theatre maker, right? Well, I was really lucky because my drama teacher, Mrs. Perrin, was like, I'm going to I'm gonna pay for this. So it was really moving, but also created a hell of a lot of pressure. <laughs> so for two years, she's trying to help me go, no, come on, this time, this time. And then like, no, <laughs> no. So after two years of that, I gave up. Uh, I felt like a complete failure. And um, I, I finished my A-levels and I was like, and I didn't want to go to university. So I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I felt like, oh, okay, this dream about theatre is obviously not for me. I'm not good enough. So I just stopped and I got a job in a tax office and I stared at a screen every day with Machu Picchu on the computer and did data input. Walked around with a trolley, finding these company files for HMRC and like tapped in the data. And then eventually I was like, fuck this, I'm going to travel. I'm just going to save up some money and go somewhere. And so that's what I did for two years. And so I left theatre for about, yeah, two years before I returned to it. Okay. Did you did you experience any theatre along the way? Or was it like a full-on kind of, that's it, I'm just going to travel? Uh, I was a member of an amateur theatre group for about six months. But it really got on my nerves. So I just left. Because that like, it was weird in, in like, in-group politics going on. And, you know, like... Oh, I just it was like, oh, oh, I can't deal with this. It's horrible. So I just left. I was in a, I was a, I was a galloping waiter in Hello Dolly. You know, okay. <laughs> it, was like, it was, it was, yeah, the lo- it was a low part in my theatre, my theatre adventures. And um, as much as like, I think it was really fun for everyone else. I think I found it really difficult because I just, it wasn't my passion. It's not, I never dreamt of doing Hello Dolly. You know, it wasn't my thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was about it. And so, yeah. But, you know, when it's interesting because in some ways, I think traveling and and having a break from it really helped me with it as well. You know, so I don't think doing theatre and art is all about constantly doing theatre and art. Sometimes you have to, I guess, experience life as well, don't you? Otherwise, yeah. You know, and see what you, what's your inspiration? <laughs> yeah. See what else. See what else is out there. What brought you back to theatre? So, um it was a friend of mine said, oh, I'm going to this this uni to study English and drama. And I was like, oh, wow. OK, that's amazing. I'd met I'd met this lovely person, this woman, uh, Ariane. She's like my best friend, basically, growing up. And she I met her in um, Manchester Youth Theatre. And so we were quite close and always in contact. And I'd been gallivanting around to different places. Like I was in Southern Africa and then I went to Southeast Asia and places like that. And then... Um, I got in contact with her and she said she's going to uh, Royal Holloway, University of London. I'm like, oh, okay. And she said, yeah, they have an amazing drama department and this, that, and the other. And I, the more I spoke to her, I started feeling this real like hunger all of a sudden to learn again. And I realised I really miss learning because I absolutely love it. Um, so I looked into different places. And as it turns out, this place, Royal Holloway, uh, had this generally really exciting drama course because you learn about theatre from all over the world and theatre makers from all over the world and the history of it 
and at the same time you practice it. So whereas some universities is really heavy, heavily weighted towards the theory, this place was half and half and had really interesting uh, practitioners coming to lead workshops and really cool lecturers. So I decided that I was going to go for that. And if I don't get into that one course, that's it. I'm not doing it. <laughs> so, really extreme. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I went for my interview and there's this amazing um, kind of political refugee from Chile called Enzo Cosi. And I had my interview with him and he was just the most wonderful guy. It was so inspiring. And like, we just had this really philosophical existential discussion for about an hour. And what I thought was going to be this interview was just this lovely chat about our shared passion for theatre. And he didn't make me feel intimidated or crap about the fact that I was, what was I, like 20 years old, 21 something. And um, yeah, he was just amazing. I left that interview going, wow, I want to be in contact with people like him. I want to learn from people like him. This is amazing, you know. And so uh, I applied, I got in, and then I started learning about theatre from all over the world. And it was, I think, one of the best things, well, one of the best things I decided to do. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, that's, that's amazing. And while you were there, did you learn about Lecoq? Is that how you, how did you end up, yeah, how did you end up going? So uh, I have to credit Peter Bramley for this. So Peter Bramley at the time, who, who runs... Um, Pants on Fire, which is a, a company. We ran Pants on Fire. He's now moved to France. He's got this lovely kind of barn that he's converted into a theatre place or whatever. Um, nice. But at the time, he was running Pants on Fire and he was a lecturer at uh, Royal Holloway. And he taught a physical theatre module, which I was like, <laughs> and just took straight away. Like I leapt on it. And that was in my first year. And as it happens, the whole thing was based largely on Lecoq's pedagogy. And he trained with Jacques Lecoq. Um, and I think he was there up until he graduated in 99. And at this point, it was, I started Royal Holloway in 2004. So yeah, it would have been 2004, 2005. And I learned all about that from someone who'd done it with, uh, with the great pedagogue himself. And it was amazing. For me at the time, I was literally like, wow! And he was so strict and like, you know, it was so kind of, driven and passionate and uh, everything was about the body and I was terribly out of shape I mean I was like leaving his classes aching and then I couldn't walk the next day I was so unfit but it just made me want to do it more I was like I need to be able to do this stuff and blah 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 and so yeah I did the most crazy insane kind of like uh, practical stuff with him and um, came away really inspired and there was another lecturer at our university called David Bradby who sadly is He's passed away now. <clears throat> he actually performed Odyssey in his kitchen just before he died. Um, oh, but wow. he was a wonderful man. And he translated Lecoq's book into English. So he, he knew uh, Jacques Lecoq and his wife, Faye. And so by the time I got to the end of my time at university, I was dead set on Lecoq. That's where I wanted to go. But I was a bit scared because the last time I tried to get into drama school, <laughs> it didn't go so well. Oh, yeah. Um, but this one was different. This one was um, where you, you write basically your own application. They don't give you any guidelines. You have to just write something saying why you want to go and who you are and, and then send your CV. And you have to have two referees. So I asked advice from David and from Peter and they, they did their best, but they're kind of like, well, it's kind of down to you. Just go for it. And so I went for it. And then you get in for a trial term, which is three months. And so I was like, Ooh. And if you don't pass the three months, you get chucked out. And then if you don't, if you want to do the second year, 
you have to also apply to do that. And the second year, Lecoq, uh, you're about 100 in your first year and 30 odd go through to the second year. So it's quite a nerve wracking first year. Yeah. <laughs> Full of like moments of, it's a bit like X Factor, <laughs> but slightly better. Um, <laughs> but a lot better, let's say. Um, <laughs> just terrifying, you know, because you, you're on edge and you think all the time that you might get chucked out. Um, so it's very competitive. Um, but yeah, so I got in. And I did my trial term. I passed that. And uh, and at the end of the first year, I was absolutely bonkers about wanting to get into second year. I did everything I could. And fortunately, I, I got through and got into my second year and completed my training at Lecoq. And all the class, is everything in French? All the... Yeah. Did you, <laughs> did you, know, did you, did you speak French? Did you know French before you I went? didn't, no. <laughs> I, I went out there going, how hard can it be? <laughs> um, no, actually, I was poop in my pants and I, I went out there and I did this Alliance Francaise course and I thought you know that'll get me ready and um, I finished the course and felt like I knew I knew rien, nothing I was literally like oh and then I started at Lecoq and on the first day I had a bit of a panic attack because there's this amazing teacher called Jos Huben and he said something at the start of the class and I stood there going what the hell did he just say and suddenly everybody lay down on the floor and I was like oh, that's what he must have said. And I was like, oh, panicked and threw myself on the floor. And I was lying next to this um, Peruvian woman called Janice. And uh, she said, don't worry, I'll, I'll translate for you. And I was like, oh, thank you so much. And so she was like translating, whispering to me, like, you know, and I found people throughout my, the first six months of my first year where I was still learning French who, who would translate for me. And I would just basically stare really hard at the teachers and hope that through osmosis, I would get what was going on. And and they give you feedback and, and then you stand there going, uh, oui, oui, merci, oui, oui, merci. And then you'd run off and go, what the fuck did they just say? What did they say? And then someone like Janice would be like, okay, she said this, A, B, C, D, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh God, okay, right. And it was, uh, it was crazy. And after about eight months, the teacher walks in and says, okay, from today onwards, there's no more translation. Everything's in French. <laughs> so you get, you get a warning that that's going to happen, but then it happens and um uh, and by that time, my French was becoming better and better. So I was understanding about 80%. And by the end of my first year, I was uh, I was kind of on top of it and fluent by the time I left. That's good. How So does it work like, um, I suppose, because when I went to Aure, it was like Monday to Friday, 8.30 till 6.30. Is it a similar kind of regime? No, it's, uh, it's really different. So you do either a morning, there are three groups and it, you're either in a morning group of which there are two or an afternoon group so you work four hours a day doing uh kind of movement class impro and um oh you can do there's like another class which could which varies it depends what subject you're working on so if you're working on mask you'll you go in depth with mask you know and learn technique and different stuff like that um and then in the afternoon you're every week you're given what's called an autocore. So you're put into a group and you have to make a piece of theater that you show to the whole school and the teachers on the Friday afternoon. And you get kind of like feedback on the spot and it's really harsh. And often you get stopped in the middle of your performance and told to stop because <laughs> it's not working. So if it doesn't work in the first like minute or two, you just literally just get stopped and they say, sorry, but this is, isn't working for these reasons. Okay. And it's never personal, but it's uh, it's all it's always really brutally honest and so yeah you spend afternoons um 
well, you're supposed to spend afternoons working with your colleagues to try and create a piece of theatre. And what happens is uh, everyone everyone's coming from a different place. So I guess some of the students come from places where they're a little bit more comfortable so they don't have to work. And students like me have to go to work. So I would be working in bars and teaching English to French students and different things like that and trying to organise when I'll meet everybody so we can rehearse for our Friday showing, you know. So you'd either meet early in the morning or you'd meet in the afternoon or you'd meet in the evening, you know, and you'd meet in parks and you're like, the school doesn't have any space and you can't afford to hire a rehearsal space. So you'd literally go to people's apartments and just rehearse in their like bedroom or you'd rehearse in like, um, yeah, like a park or in the street or uh, just wherever you can find a space and you just kind of go for it. And yeah, it's really tough, but it was really fun because you, you learn to be really uh, resourceful and uh, you just make do and you become really creative at, um, I guess, making sure that you come up with something and pushing yourself for it to be the best it can be, despite circumstances not always being ideal. <laughs> yeah, so I suppose that set up like a really good foundation for the rest of your career. Well, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, totally, it did. And it. I guess if you've been through the mill uh, in your training and you've had a really tough time, it makes the rest of your life, I, I guess, feel not so bad i mean because because all the challenges that come afterwards you're kind of like yeah okay I, this is familiar because i went through this at school or you know and so you you it kind of prepares you really well for i guess some of the more tough times to come and certainly i think it's interesting because when this pandemic struck i think um it really helped me in some ways try to look for the positive or try to look for the opportunities whether that's a digital approach to making art, you know, or whatever it is, or just not getting too down. Like, it really helped with my mental health, you know, and it hasn't been easy, but yeah, having gone through something like that, you kind of understand the importance of trying to find a creative way through things. And I feel really lucky that I had that experience, that I'd been taught that approach, you know. Was Was it as intense and rigorous as you thought that it would be? more actually i it was incredibly uh, physically and emotionally demanding um you know i don't know one person who didn't run into the toilet crying at some point <laughs> and it's funny because you know you hear these horror stories from drama schools over here you know i've, I've heard them and where people are treated not so, so very well in all sorts of different circumstances um and you know this idea of breaking you down and then you have to build yourself up again and I really hate that. I really hate it. I, I find it really disturbing. And the difference is, although uh, at Lecoq, I mean, I, maybe some people would disagree with me here, but my opinion is it's very difficult, it's very, very hard and emotionally demanding and all that. But no one ever got personal with you. No one ever tried to break you down. <clears throat> all they do literally is tell you what's not working. So the rule is literally, if it doesn't work, you're going to find out. And when you find out, it's your job to figure out a solution essentially and so it's a massive problem solving task and it's incredibly frustrating because sometimes you really want the answer and no one's giving it to you you know they're just telling you no this doesn't work no sorry no no i'm not moved you know the the task of this week was to make me cry i'm not crying you're making me laugh but i'm stopping you because the task wasn't to make me laugh it was to make me cry (laughs) you know (laughs) as you're going it's like you know and and you, you learn quickly, like, it's not enough just to create something. What they're trying to get you to do is to master a technique, to master, if I want to create a show where my audience cry, 
what do I need to know in order to do that? You know, and that's bloody hard. And, and you end up tearing yourself apart. And that's fascinating from a psychological point of view, because, you know, you start, you look at yourself and you go, why am I doing this to myself? And you, so you also, there's a therapeutic journey where you start to learn about yourself, how to deal with yourself. You recognize certain triggers and you, you know, yeah, it's fascinating. But, um, but I much prefer that than, uh, than the approaches I heard about in the UK. But having not gone to UK drum school, I can't really, I'm not one to be able to fully criticize. But I, I think that I really appreciated the approach at the COP. Yeah, I, I like the, the sound of that, that it's not a personal thing. It's just this isn't working and you need to fix that. That's better than this isn't working. Because and you're, you're terrible. shit. Because you're shit. <laughs> yeah, like, what's going on with that voice of yours? That's that's a, that's a shit voice. So you could have made that a bit better. <laughs> and you're like, my voice, ah, forever. Um, yeah, yeah. And then what? And then so did Ad Infinitum, that came from Lecoq, being a Lecoq in training. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, while I was at Lecoq, I started to think about the idea of creating a company and um, making shows. I had no clue how you even do that but i was getting more and more excited about it and um actually the the training finished on a really difficult note for me uh, i uh, the last thing you do at the cock you get given an an, an envelope it's, also, it's like something from harry potter isn't it but anyway you get given an envelope it's called la commande uh commande even not la and uh inside you have this little slip of paper and a sentence on it and you have to use that sentence as inspiration to create a piece of theatre. And that's your final thing that you do at the school. And you have, I can't remember what it is, like three or four weeks. And um, and the big difference is as well that you've spent um, however many weeks across two years, each week creating a new piece of theatre in a completely different group with this set of people for two years. And there's been no director. Everything is collaborative, which is a nightmare. You know, like you, you learn very quickly oh, I wish I had a director, you know, someone to make a decision. And suddenly at the end, it's it's your command and you are in charge. And everyone has to be at service to your command. And it's such a beautiful thing because you learn to be at the service of someone else's idea. And at the same time, they learn to be at the service of your idea. And they back you 100% and they know how difficult it is because they're going through the same thing. And, and you just, you suddenly go, wow, I've learned so much and I'm, I mean, it was such a moving kind of thing, but I, I did uh, this thing called Behind the Mirror, and it was about um, that was my command behind the mirror, and it ended up being the title of the piece, and it was about um, my evil mirror reflection coming through the mirror to the other side, pretending to be me and making my life a complete mess, uh, and I'm and me chasing this person around, fighting them and trying to stop them from ruining my life, basically. And I guess it was about and, and my alter ego and my darker sides and things like that. And uh, it was a comedy and it was a very comedic, like comedia dell'arte kind of style, but without masks. And uh, and the audience who came in, because you had a mixture of like the public and, um, and all of the students, and they were in hysterics laughing and it, it felt like it went really well. And then after all the commands for that day were done, we go to the back and the teachers give their feedback. And they basically said... Uh, uh, on a, on a... like basically we haven't understood anything like we didn't understand what was going on it wasn't very um didn't get it uh it, it wasn't very well conceived this that the other, loads of criticism and i was just like wow i totally didn't expect it i thought they i thought they were going to recognize the way the audience had responded and so i left the school feeling like oh 
But then it made me really like, and I just thought, right, fuck this, I'm going to create my own company. I'm going to make the full shower behind the mirror. And I did. And I ended up taking to Edinburgh and it was the start of of our company's, uh, it was our company's foundation, essentially. It became the first show we did. And it was uh, for what, for, for, for someone fresh out of school, it was a fairly successful first show in Edinburgh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I watched, I watched the trailer because I'd not, like earlier today, because I'd not heard of, I'd not heard of the show because I was like, oh, what shows have I not heard of? And then I was like looking through and I was like, wow. It, yeah, it looked great. I, I thought it was, um, looked really good. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, at the time, it was all about like fresh out of drama school. Let's just do something. Yeah, let's make a show. And and it was really fun, you know, to do that. Um, and really fun to do that without words and, you know, use all of the techniques that we'd been learning for years. But um, <clears throat> funnily enough, over the years, that kind of show uh, somehow, not it wasn't like a decision to, or, or in any way to look down on a piece like that. It was just that our work became more and more political. And, and as we got a platform, we kind of realized that we could do something with it, say something, um, make people think. And it felt like a really important space all of a sudden it made us think really hard about the type of work that we wanted to make. And so it's really funny because it means that looking back now behind the mirror, although I look back on it really fondly, it's nothing like the work that we, <laughs> that we make now. You know, it's like uh, rien à voir, as they say in France. And uh, it's... Yeah, but I do look back on it fondly. I think, you know, it did a lot for us. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, because looking back, I was like, it is very different. It is a very different show to the, the work that you make now. Was was Odyssey the second show that you... Did Odyssey come after that? That's right, yeah. It was the second show that we made, yeah. And, uh, yeah, Odyssey was, I guess, our first... We, we looked at, what, Greek myths, but we also looked at, I guess, a, a mo modern, really physical virtuosic style and uh, we looked at I guess how to move an audience with this epic tale and um, yeah but still it wasn't very political though I think Odyssey was a movement towards something else gradually but um, I don't think we really got to the political until The Big Smoke which was a show that uh, Nia directed which was which looked at the confessional poets and also the theme of suicide and that's the first time we started to really think about <clears throat> what our shows could do, I suppose, and what they could mean and what they could talk about or represent. And that, I guess it was a really interesting process from, I guess it shows a development in confidence as well in some ways, I'm speaking maybe here for myself, but um, you know, shows that aim to please. And, and we always want our audience to enjoy the work. And obviously any theatre maker will, I think, would want their audience to enjoy what they're doing and to not hate their theatre piece. Um, but there's a there's a difference between, um, you know, making work where you're predominantly thinking about, oh, I hope they laugh, I hope they do this, and et cetera, et cetera, to trusting in what you do and believing in yourself and going, all right, what, what as an artist, do I feel it's important to say, you know? And that has grown even more. So now it's not just me, it's like, I might be collaborating with a group and I'll be like, well, what do we want to say? You know, and it's less about me. I'm like, who cares about me? You know? But what do we as a little mini society believe is important? Because then you get other things. You get this wonderful experience of uh, a group of people all feeling a sense of ownership about a piece of art, which for me is one of the most rewarding, beautiful things you can do. And, and then to widen that out, to bring in a community, you know, 
for an audience to feel a sense of ownership around the piece too, because maybe they gave a testimony or a story that ended up in that piece, you know? So this is the journey that we've been going on and it by no means invalidates anyone else's artistic process, but it's where we found ourselves. It's where I've been drawn, I suppose. Do you think, were you that way, were you sort of, you mentioned about sort of when you went to Manchester Youth Theatre and kind of a different, like all the different diverse voices and cultures and collections, like all being together. Was that something, and I suppose like the more political sort of led sort of work to an extent, was that something that's always been there, do you think? And you said about kind of moving forward and it kind of changing from that entertainment to that sort of the platform. Has that been there right from the beginning all the way back from the beginning in your mind, not necessarily um, in the uh, theatrical a- sense? Yeah, well, it's been a quite a complex um, awakening, I suppose, because when I think back, I wasn't really aware growing up of my place in society, let's say, and you know, and it's intersectional. So I've got my homosexuality, and I wasn't aware how much I was being shamed growing up, you know, in various experiences and what effect that would have on me psychologically. And I also really wasn't aware of my socioeconomic status, you know, other than like my mum and dad being like, oh, working class this, working class that, you know, you're like, yeah, okay, whatever, you know. And then growing up in like, at first all around the place, because my dad was like a private in the army. But then when we moved back to Liverpool, you know, it's very much a working class kind of setup. But I didn't have anything else to compare it to until I started meeting other people first at this um, like summer school for drama and stuff, Manchester Youth Theatre. So, and then Really, it was like a university. And um, when I traveled, I'd bump into other people who came from different backgrounds and be like, whoa, you know, like it was a real culture shock. So um, there's been a kind of awakening there. And then, um, sorry, I'd like this kind of three prong approach answer to give you. And I've just gone blank. I'm trying to remember what your question was can you remind me of it um yeah i think because i thought of on the spot and because i rambled quite a bit and then ended <laughs> with like and that's that and i'm just gonna sit back and let george see the rest of the work what was it so um oh have i always been have you always been it. yeah has um so yeah okay and i've got you now i've got you now it's all about the politics and also the kind of like uh yeah, the types of people that we work with and the types of stories that we tell. So, yeah, I think what's interesting is that when I made Behind the Mirror, I made a flyer for it as well, because at the time I had to basically do everything because we didn't really have a company. We just wanted to create the image of a company. <laughs> and, and I say we, it was me. Um, yeah, so uh, it's really grown since then. <laughs> but I made this flyer and the flyer was all about like, you know, like, this show is like talking about like the politics of war and like battling and this and that. And it was like a really political flyer. And then a journalist came to review it and said, this is a really good piece of slapstick. It's basically really funny, but it's not about this. It's not about that. And it's not about politics. It's not about, and I was like, Oh my God, of course it's not, you know, of course it's not, it's what I wanted it to be about, but it wasn't about that. So I've, I've kind of been on this journey where I've had to kind of um, unite my ambition uh, to create something pol- political with the actual making of a piece of theatre. And, and in the same way I was telling you before, you know, when the teachers at Lecoq were saying, like, we asked you to make us cry, not to make us laugh, and this makes us laugh. You know, I had to really be honest with myself in my creative processes. So just because I found something exciting, uh, doesn't mean I should shove that into the next piece of theatre, you know, because it's, it's not what I'm trying to find here. So 
it was a, case, a question sometimes of challenging myself to, to push and push and push until I find the thing that I'm actually looking for. And that meant letting go of all sorts of really exciting stuff that wasn't, wasn't really relevant to a creative process, you know. Um, and, and also, I need to credit uh, Nia here. So Nia got on board in 2009. We, we met at Lecocum. We recently finally got married, but we've been together for 15 years. And at first we created separate companies because we thought we'd kill each other. And then in 2009, we actually created one, we became one company. He let go of his and joined Ad Infinitum and we became one. Um, Spice Girls, two became one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, just ruined your podcast. No, I like it. (laughs) And my street cred. Uh, Anyway, uh, so yeah, two became one. And um, and there's, yeah, he's, he's, also really passionate about his politics and um and he's also been on a journey and i've been really i like to think we've been inspired by each other but you know speaking for myself i've been very inspired by Nia, and he's been uh, really good at honing honing in and focusing in on the politics that he wants to really address and um and that's been amazing for me to watch so when i seen that in the big smoke it really inspired me and that my next step was translunar paradise and i wanted to really explore the role of grief in society, of loneliness in, in old age and, um, and look at our elders. And that resulted in that, that play. It was a first step for me. Then I did Light, which was in response to um, the Edward Snowden revelations and mass surveillance. And actually for me, funnily enough, I almost got there, but I was kind of hampered by the style and it ended up being more like an action movie on stage, which people loved and it sold out and blah, blah, blah. But it didn't quite hit heavy enough on the politics for me. And it wasn't until I did Extraordinary Wall of Silence that I feel like I really found my political voice in as a theatre maker, you know, uh, whereas I, I think I would credit Nia finding his all the way back when he did um, Ballad of the Burning Star, you know. So yeah. Yeah, I think that was it. And then the third prong I would think from, for me is, is it, when I talk about an awakening, it's my own awakening to again my own place in society and who i am we're all being asked now to define ourselves you know this it's the age of identity politics and suddenly i'm being asked to tell everyone from the arts council to journalists whether i'm gay queer working class or whatever i you know, suddenly you have to define yourselves in all these ways that before i just didn't i maybe i was wouldn't want to tell anyone or you know or i just felt like it was private or i don't know like it just wasn't a thing that you go around saying and suddenly like the world has changed massively and um and i'm trying still trying to understand what all that means and what i think about it and yeah and also trying to respect uh, my friends and my colleagues are going on their own journey through that kind of identity politics and all the complexities that that's bringing for just about everyone i would say but uh, it's an interesting time because it feels like people who have traditionally been on the margins are gaining confidence gaining a voice in a sense and um yeah, and I would say it's the same for us with suddenly understanding that uh, we don't have to be maybe ashamed of where we've come from, who we are. We don't have to hide certain aspects of ourselves. But at the same time, it's it's uh, it's unnerving and it's weird. And yeah, we want to kind of, we don't want to flaunt parts of ourselves. We just want to do the art. We just want to make theatre, you know. So it's, it's, a, it's a balance, really. And uh, yeah, it's an interesting time. Yeah. I think it is, yeah, because there's, yeah, there's com- yeah, there's conversations, there's things sometimes where you're like, oh, I've, people have, I've not had this conversation myself, and people are, um, kind of, 
sort of talking about it and being and I'm able to have my platform to sort of speak after and find that when I'm with like friends or things and yeah. they'll sort of they might talk really kind of especially if I, I suppose like in relation to race sometimes it's like I suppose yeah. growing up having a black mother and a white father it's like it was just kind of there we would have conversations but it was kind of much within the household and now it's like everyone's kind of having those conversations and sometimes I suppose being with friends that are white and then they're talking about like race it's kind of like oh do I jump in do I like I don't want to necessarily have to be like the voice that kind of comes in and is like actually from my so does that make sense yeah it does it's like um this sense sometimes of like uh, you have the burden of being the one who has to bring their lived experience but like sometimes you're like fuck off I don't want to bring (laughs) I just want to sit here or I'm just happy to listen I don't really you know want to say anything or or sometimes you really want to say something but other people are taking up all the space (laughs) I don't know, it's really complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's both that. It's like, the, yeah, sometimes you're like, I just want to listen, I don't want to live. But also, you're taking up the space, so can, you, can I kind of come in? But also, yeah. don't make me... <laughs> yeah, can you not oblige me to come in right now because I'm feeling a bit raw? <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to talk about um, where we met, um, Pink Mist. Yeah. I was kind of come. I wanted to come up with like a nice segue, and I um, I, I couldn't. So there we go. How did? So you um, yeah, it's it's in. <laughs> We're doing Explode it. Explode in there with think this. Brilliant. Um, so you you won the National Theatre uh, Quirkus Award. Is yeah, that that's it? right. Yeah, yeah. What, I did. What, what's that? What's that award? What the hell is that? <laughs> um, yeah, I'd never heard of it before either. I was. <laughs> uh i what happened so we were touring at the time it was back in 2014 um and in a conversation with a programmer at bristol ovic they said oh have you heard about this this thing you need to apply for it and if you get it you you uh become the associate director at bristol ovic and you can do a main house show whatever and i was like "Ooh, that sounds exciting so i put an application together and i discussed it with Nia, and we agreed that if like it was felt like a really long shot but if I were to get it like uh I'd have to go probably have to try and negotiate and go part-time ad infinitum even though they were saying it was like you have to do it for a year full-time so I was a bit cheeky and I just kind of went for it not expecting much and then I got an interview and I was like oh shit <laughs> I have to actually come up with the cards and and it was just like it was it was terrifying so I had this talk with myself before I went in every time for an interview I was like I'm just gonna be myself and if they don't like it, fuck them, like whatever. Like, cause I can't change who I am and I can't pretend to be something that I'm not. I can't pretend I've read all these plays that I haven't. And I can't pretend that I've, you know, had this career where I, I directed Macbeth and then I directed Romeo and Juliet and then I directed blah, blah, blah. No, I didn't like, you know, I made my own company and I made Behind the Mirror. <laughs> then I made Odyssey and they're like, and like a lot of these people, they haven't heard of these shows because they don't necessarily follow that world. So I just kind of, boom went for it and actually they were super super bloody lovely and open and really um really uh gentle and i don't know like it ended up being somehow quite a, a nice process and uh and it the process ended with tom morris giving me a phone call saying like will you move to if we give it to you will you move to bristol and i was like can i speak to can i speak to my partner near because that's quite a big ask <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, I had to speak to Nia and we said, yeah, let's do it. Let's move to Bristol. And uh, and the rest is history. So where were you living? At the, were you living in London at the time? 
Yeah, we were in Forest Hill. Okay. At the time. Yeah, we'd been in London for about eight years. So then you moved to Bristol, and then when when did you start? When did the award... What, what, what happened next? So I think I found out in December, and then... Um, I had to be in, I agreed to be in Bristol by June, I think it was. But then what was happening was I had to go back and forth anyway to Bristol because that's when Tom was like, have you read this play? And I was like, no, I haven't read it. I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, it's called Pink Mist. Owen oh, Shears wrote it, blah, blah. So I had to read it. And then I wrote, I wrote him this whole like critique about what I thought about it because he asked me to, you know, wanted to know what I thought. And he was like, well, what do you think about working with John Metallic on... I was like, who's John Metallic? I have no idea. And then, you know, I remember having to meet um, Emma Stenning at the Oxford Playhouse where I was going to see a reading of it that John was doing. And uh, I'm just being really, like, basically terrified. <laughs> and then I met John after. I was like, oh, yeah. And Emma was, like, you know, trying to introduce me. And I was thinking, oh, I don't... How's this going to work? How am I going to work with John? I don't, it was just so foreign to me, this whole thing. Like, because all my collaborators I'd kind of known from training, you know, I'd, and I'd kind of avoided this whole world where people audition people they don't know and then get into rehearsal room together and stuff like that. So I found it all really terrifying. But anyway, that's that's how it started. I read the play. Tom wrote me in. I met John. John was super lovely and sweet and really kind. And... Uh, and next thing we were doing auditions and uh, that I think that was in April of that year, which is when I first saw your good self. And then before you know it, we, I think rehearsals were in end of June, July, for like three weeks. Wasn't yeah. It? it was really like quick, you know? Yeah, it was, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was so quick and there was so much, so much to kind of do and happen. I remember the first, that kind of R and D where we all sort of, we did like a bit of movement stuff. We had like chairs and we kind of like moved them to different bits around the room. And then we went yeah. away for about three weeks, four weeks. And then we started rehearsals and then we were, we were kind of off. What was it? What was it like working with John? And I, I have to say, I have to give loads of credit to John because I learned so much from him about directing text, you know, and from that I was able to apply that to the movement work that I do. And, and yeah, it was like, for me, it was like a crash course working with John. And at the same time, it was wonderful working with Owen on, on a text that lent itself so much to movement. Before that, I hadn't really thought about that connection to text in such a profound way. Yeah, it was just a wonderful experience. And uh, yeah, I'll never forget it. It was great. Yeah, it was. It was just like a really kind of magical, really intense, really difficult, <laughs> tricky, but really fun time. I just, yeah, there's just like moments where I just... Um, I think the audition, I think probably the audition was one of the hardest kind of thing when we were like rolling around in that room that like <laughs> near the lift at the Jerwood space. And it was just like, and yeah, just, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Just kind of all the physical stuff and like the language and the, there were quite a few sort of Lecoq techniques, weren't there? That the stuff that you learn, those movements or something? Yeah. The 12, yeah. no. The 20 the movements, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's just at the school you learn 20 movements in your first year and you learn them in, in quite a, this is a movement, you know, and then you learn where it comes from. So you have movements of nature, movements of sport and so on and so forth. And then in the second year, you revisit those movements and what they can teach you about theatre. You know, so um, you might have, there's a movement called the discus thrower 
and that relates uh, to the connection between comedy and tragedy and you learn about it in a physical and uh, and I guess spiritual and um, practical way and and it's just the most incredible thing because it boom your mind just opens up to what that gives you and and if you understand it in your own body you can understand it within the body of the theater space itself you know you understand it within the body of a chorus moving on the stage how to reach those horizontals and verticals and how they trigger the feeling of tragedy you know so uh, what i what my challenge was in a short space of time how do i give that to you guys so that you not just uh you know just stand there and george is lecturing you and you're like yeah okay whatever you're like you can embody it on the stage and own it yourself so i think credit to you guys really because you were so receptive to that because it's a bloody hard thing to get across and and also um you know it was just it was a wonderful coming together of different elements which allowed that to be possible because i think owen's writing made it possible too because it was inherent in his text you know it was just there so it was like i was i felt really like we were in a special kind of event of the writing the spirit behind that writing your guys like open approach to the performance be that you know the acting and, and the text or the physicality and all these things coming together and then you got John's sound design, which also we were lucky to have that in the room a lot of the time, right? And yeah. it was such a thumping, inspirational, kind of motivating thing as well. And then, you know, when the whole thing got on stage and we had um, we had Emma's design and Peter's lighting, you know, that watercolour landscape thing he did behind all of you. It was just the most, like, oh, it was just wonderful. It was so exciting. It was great. I think that was what was great as well, is that constant, we were constantly looking at it and tweaking and moving. Even when we went yeah. to the bush, it was a, a smaller yeah. space and it was completely different to to oh, having that it? size um, at, uh, at Bristol Old Vic. And were you, I remember when we did it at the bush, were you, um, and you said about Marion Elliott as well with the award, was she yeah. mentoring you at the time? That's right, yeah, I got, I got, um... I can't remember how many mentoring sessions where me and Marianne would meet and talk about, you know, uh, anything from challenges that I was facing artistically to uh, some of the more administrative administrative tasks, sorry, that I was doing at Bristol Vic. And wow, what a wonderful woman she is. She's so clever and sensitive and inspirational and, and her work is just great. Whereas when I've seen Marianne's work, I feel like it's, yeah, there's something really beautiful and human and connecting about it. And so working with her was wonderful. And she was so busy. I don't even know how she did it. She'd get up at crazy hours in the morning. She'd spent, she was telling me about how many hours she she spends preparing for rehearsal each day, you know, before she even gets to rehearsal. And then she has to do an entire day of rehearsal. I was just like, oh my God. You know, so there was so much to learn from her. To that, well, let's skip forward to No Kids, because, which I really loved. Oh, yeah. Because it, was that the first time you hadn't, performed in a while like i know that you've done odyssey yeah, i saw odyssey true. in 2016 with um when me and phil came to watch it in canary wharf and it was <laughs> in right, a really yeah. odd like all really these banks show, that were like just above and then it's in this garden which was yeah. amazing and i was like couldn't like i was like because you were there for the hour couldn't take my eyes off of you performing and then it ended and then i was like oh there's hsbc <laughs> and there's like <laughs> It's random, like it random. It was really weird, wasn't it? And uh, yeah, I, I spent the whole time performing, wondering if anyone could hear me because it was in that kind of atrium, like it was really open. I wasn't mic'd, and uh, 
yeah, it's really strange. But um, I was so happy that you guys came to watch it, though. It was really lovely to have your faces in the audience. But yeah, No Kids. Um, no Kids was, uh, God, wow, that was such a challenging piece as well. But um, basically, Nia had this idea, uh, <laughs> both in theatre and in life, that um, maybe we should think about having kids. And uh, at first, I was kind of like terrified both in theatre and in life. And, um, and Nia kept talking about it. And eventually it was like, I think we could do a really good show about just the question, should we have kids or not? And so I was like, Oof, wow, okay. Um, yeah, maybe, yeah. Um, I felt very conflicted about that because of how personal it felt. And I wasn't quite sure how we translate that into a piece of theatre that doesn't feel too navel gazing, you know? Um, so in the end, we decided let's let's do it uh, and it ended up being a really good catalyst for us in life as well because we had to research you know all the different options that were there for us to decide which ones we should go for you know if we're going to have kids should we adopt should we co-parent with a third person uh, should we do uh, surrogacy and you know and work with a surrogate mother who then isn't around afterwards or a surrogate mother that we become great friends with that does stick around or, you know, there's so many different ways of approaching it and they're all very challenging and difficult in their own ways. So um, through the experience of researching it, we kind of logged that in this play and uh, merged that with all of our fantasies and all of our fears about being parents and all of our experiences of being children and remembering our parents and the way they treated us. And that became no kids and it's really funny because the hardest bit was like trying to figure out what the end should be and we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to come up with like almost like an answer to the question should we have kids or not but then we realized it's a play it's not real life we don't need to have the answer yet <laughs> yeah. kind of helped us with the ending of the show but <clears throat> yeah uh, and yeah now actually it's been when did we open no kids it was I think it was 2018, just before we got married, actually. We went to Edinburgh with it. And then the September after Edinburgh, we got married. And um, we, for a long time, thought we were going to adopt. And now we have begun a process with Surrogacy UK of uh, of finding a surrogate because we want to have our own child to surrogacy. So um, that's currently oh. where we're at. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's really nice. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. <laughs> I'm really happy for you. Thank you. So how, um, are you just in the beginning or is this like, has this? Well, uh, we are currently on the waiting list to become members. So it takes about a year to 14 months. Uh, and we joined the waiting list in September. So we've probably got until November before we become members. And then you, you're constantly joining socials, which at the moment are online. And through those socials, you um, meet uh, other intended parents and uh, surrogates. And if there's a connection, then a surrogate rings Surrogacy UK and you go into what's called a kind of getting to know you phase for about three months. And if that goes well, then you kind of go for it. So it can take quite a few years but uh, we really love the process. We think it makes a lot of sense. And, um, and I think thinking of our child to be, I think it feels important that, that the surrogate mother is someone that we are friends with, that we do know that we are in touch with so that if they want to be in touch with them and they want to have a relationship, that that's, that's kind of there. It's already a part of life, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. there's already a connection rather exactly, than just yeah. um, not knowing who the the parent is and all of whether well, adopt. Yeah, the yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't think of the word. <laughs> I was like, adoptee, adopter. I, we, I... we all knew what you wanted to say, so it's fine. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> um, that feels like a really nice note to end on. Oh, <laughs> was... <laughs> there was more I wanted to ask, but I think that's. Uh, it's been so nice to speak to you, um, and thanks for inviting me onto your podcast. That's been really nice speaking to you and uh yeah thanks george and yeah i'll speak to you soon goodbye absolute pleasure bye